Do you find people drawn to weakness and grief and hardship and difficulty? Uh, no, they, they say, oh, I don't want to get involved with that. And so they looked at him. The climax of this inability to see Jesus as Messiah, Savior, comes with these same descriptions. It says they stripped him. You understand? Do, do you, can you relate to the humility of nakedness? Uh, we have an inbuilt shame because of sin, because of nakedness, and we have, uh, we have this thing that we, we know we're supposed to be clothed. They stripped him, then they put a scarlet robe on him, and they mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. Does that look like a king? Does that look like a Messiah deliverer? Does that look like somebody who's going to solve all of our social political problems? And then it goes on, of course, it gets worse. They crucified him and divided his garments. And they put over his head the accusation that says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then there were two robbers crucified with him. What kind of people do kings hang out with? Not robbers. Kings don't get on crosses. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst criminals, and it was administered by Rome. The Jewish people didn't crucify people. They, they, that was too inhumane for them. In the Old Testament, there's a special curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the reason is because it goes back to the time when the children of Israel rebelled, and, and God sent snakes, and they were being bitten and died, and the salvation came when Moses made a brass snake and put it on a pole and lifted it up, and if they would look on that, they would be saved. And so God says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The people around Jesus, looking with their natural eyes, could not figure out, in these circumstances, how he could claim to be God's chosen servant. No real deliverer of Israel would allow himself to be treated so terribly and then crucified. So they said, you don't look like a Savior, you don't act like a Savior, and, and thirdly, we don't think you have any credibility. We use the term moral authority today. He doesn't have the moral authority to be a savior. Now remember, I'm talking from the perspective of those who were natural and who didn't believe. I, I certainly believe he had the moral authority to be the savior. But they looked at him, and why would they say this? Look at Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. They looked at him on the cross and said, he must have done something really bad because he's on the cross. Now, before we judge them too harshly, we should go back to the Old Testament uh, general promises that God made. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, his statutes, which he has commanded you. It shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy he swore to your fathers. 
and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. So clearly what he says here is, if you live for God, God will bless you. They looked at the cross and said, that doesn't look like the blessing of God. Jesus' own disciples referred to these prince, this, this principle as well um, when they said this. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. As soon as they saw a person with a difficulty, they said, well, he's got to be a sinner. Either him or his parents. And then, of course, the people around Jesus or the man, uh, this is from the later episode, the man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where Jesus is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Clearly, they, they, they had grasped this, this principle to mean if if you live for God, you will never have a problem. Certainly, you will not find yourself in that situation. Now, the problem was they hadn't grasped all of God's truth, only part of God's truth. And so they said, you can't be the Savior because if you were the Savior, you wouldn't be on the cross. You don't look like a Savior. You don't act like a Savior. You don't have the moral authority to be the Savior. And that's why they said things like this while he was on the cross. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. The word blaspheme means to say something bad. So they came by and insulted him. And here's some of the insults. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. You think you're something? Well, show it to us. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking what the scribes and elders said, he saved others. They're obviously making reference to times when he said, I forgive your sins. And when he healed people, he saved others. Him, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Again, referring to this idea that, that if God was with him, he certainly would not be on the cross. Those people were looking through the lens of human thinking. And so they couldn't see the real Jesus Let's look back now and find the spiritual view of Christ. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. First and foremost, he was wounded for our transgressions. With a great big uh, change in the literature by saying, but. He says, surely, these people were saying, he's been smitten by God. And then God says, but here is the reality. The reality is this. First of all, Christ is my substitute. He was wounded for my transgressions. He is my substitute. What did Adam, what did God tell Adam and Eve would be the result if they disobeyed? If they disobeyed? What? Death. What had to happen in order for Adam and Eve not to die? Another death, 
the death of an animal that provided the skins to cover them. What did God require as a sacrifice for sin throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant of the Law? What did he require? I'll give you a clue. There's a theme here. Death. God said, if you sin, you're going to die. And the only way for you not to die, he didn't tell them this ahead of time, that's why grace kicks in. Instead of, instead of upon their sin, him just going, boom, you're dead. Which he would have been fully justified in doing. Instead, he comes around and he says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, well, I... Let me paraphrase it. Adam says, I sinned and now I'm naked, so I've covered myself up with these leaves. And God says, that's not good enough. And God put some animals to death and he covered Adam and Eve with skins. And it was a prefigurement of the sacrifice that would happen on Calvary. God promised death for sin. And so the only possible solution to sin is somebody's death. That's why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the contrast possibility is that the gift of God is eternal life. And that's why when I see Christ on the cross beaten and, and cut and abused beyond recognition and then nailed to the cross... I need to look and say, He is there in my place. He is taking my place. I should be dying. Not that I could ever pay for my sin. But I should be put to death by God. But instead, He's being put to death. He is my substitute. Christ died for us so that we don't have to, to suffer God's punishment. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're all sinners. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God says... That in the end of time, when those people are judged who have never believed in Christ, that that judgment will be accomplished using some books. And although I don't know what they'll look like, I know what they would contain. And it would be the record of sin. Because what he says there in the end of the book of Revelation is he said, the books were open and the dead were judged by the works that were written there. And what that means is that every single one of us has a record book with God. Now, I chose these books because they were the thickest ones that I have. I can't imagine what a record of all my sins would look like. Maybe the Library of Congress. But the great news is
God took my books. God took my books when I was a little kid. And he's not keeping a record anymore. Because he hung my books on Christ. And if you've believed in Christ as your Savior, God has hung your books on the cross too. That's what this means. God took all your sin and put it onto Christ. Could anything be less fair? Salvation is not about fairness. Salvation is about grace. I didn't deserve to be saved, even though I was just a little kid. By all accounts, I hadn't done a lot of really bad things, just a few kind of bad things. But God took my sin. Christ is my substitute. And so when I look at the cross, I see beauty. I, I, it's probably a weakness in us that we don't see him broken and bloody and marred. We see him beautiful for taking our sin. Well, Christ is my substitute, but I, there's something else I can see here, and that is this. Christ is God's satisfaction. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord. Sue, would you give me Kleenex, please? It pleased the Lord. When you see the word Lord written in all caps like that is, it means Jehovah, and it's a reference to God the Father. It pleased the Father to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin, the Father shall see the Son's seed, the Father shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Father shall prosper in his hand. The Father shall see the labor of the Son's soul and be satisfied. What is he satisfied about? He's satisfied that the debt has been paid for sin. When God the Father looked at Adam and Eve and he said, if you eat, if you rebel against me, dying you shall die. And when Adam and Eve went and sinned, they immediately had a huge debt to pay to God. The sin was on them. And God cannot close his eyes like a, like a grandfather who says, come into my office and get some candy and I don't care. I don't care what your parents think or anybody else. Because all I want to do is get your affection. See, God can't do that because God is God. And God says, oh, I love you. And oh, I had such great things for you. But now you've sinned and now I have to punish you because I am absolutely holy and righteous and I cannot cover my eyes. There is a debt to be paid. And Jesus satisfied the debt for all mankind who will believe. The demand for the payment of the sin of Adam and Eve was an active debt waiting to be collected until Christ 
paid for it with his death. A well-known pastor of many years ago, Harry Ironside, wrote this in his commentary on verse 6, talking about God paying this debt through Christ. He said, to me, verse 6 is the most wonderful text in the Bible. I have been preaching it for 60 years, and that is the first text I ever preached on. I was just a boy of 14 years old and out on the street in Los Angeles with the Salvation Army. I started speaking on that verse, meaning to take five minutes. But a half hour later, the captain leaned over and said, boy, we should have been back in the hall 20 minutes ago. You'll have to tell us the rest some other time. I've been trying to tell the rest all through the years since. But it's a text I never get beyond. How incredibly great is it to know that I am spiritually debt-free? I think most of us who are adults know what it's like to have some debt, at the very least a debt on your house, if not some other debt that's been incurred unwisely. And uh, when you come to the end of a debt, when you come to that last car payment, and you write that check and you send it off and you go, finally, I am free. Well, the great news of the cross, the beauty of Jesus is that he made us spiritually free, debt-free before God. We can stand before God with confidence. There's one more view of Christ here that we need to have, and that is this. Christ is my Savior. Now, I understand that the word Savior is used in a number of different ways, and I understand it could, it could go for several of these things, but look at, uh, at verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Christ has done a whole series of things for us as believers. It's not just that our sin is removed, but it's that righteousness has been implanted in place of it. The word salvation is does refer to the beginning, if you will, that transaction that takes place between us and God, whereby we are declared righteous and we're made ready for heaven and we have escaped hell. And yet salvation is also ongoing in the transformation, which is probably best captured in a verse like this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christ is transforming my life. Salvation touches every area of life now except the body. And in the future it will include the body as well. And Isaiah 53 gives us a glimpse of that. And the first glimpse is this. Christ gives us comfort for grief. Look at verse 4. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. I think a verse like this helps us to understand that even a little bit better. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations. Jesus not only gives us comfort for grief, but he gives us joy for sorrow. Again in verse 4, he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. 
Second Thessalonians, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, that means encouragement and hope, may he comfort you and establish you in every good work. God gives us joy for sorrow. Thirdly, he gives us peace for our anxiety. Look at uh, verse 5. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. That peace begins with our relationship with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. When Jesus took our place on the cross and made it possible for our sins to be removed, he made it possible for us to be directly related to God. God is our Father. We have confidence to talk to him, to ask him for help, to pray to him. Christ also gives restoration for brokenness. Now I know that when Chet preached a few weeks ago, he used this as a Christian virtue, the word brokenness, and it is. And, and, and as such, it refers to being humble before God. I'm using it in verse 5 in the sense where it says, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, the chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Some people have tried to take from this that the idea of physical healing comes here, but it doesn't. It's talking about spiritual healing, internal healing. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The idea that without Christ we are trapped in the brokenness of sin, we are, we are sick, if you will, with sin, but when Christ uh, comes in when he takes away our sin, there is restoration, there is healing for that brokenness that sin brings. And lastly, in terms of salvation, Christ gives righteousness for sinfulness. For as by one man, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, Christ, many will be made righteous. Many years ago, I heard two men argue about a car, as only men can do. Uh, one of them was a chief of police, and one of them was a reserve deputy. And they were arguing about the virtues of shutting the car off or leaving it idle And uh, in terms of police work. <laughs> And the, uh, the reserve deputy was arguing and saying, for this point, it's better to, it takes less gas to leave the car running than it does to shut it off and start it up again. And the chief of police, who was old enough to be his father, was going, no, <laughs> you shut the car off and it quits using gas, and then you start it up when you get back in it. And... Uh, you know, just so you know, I did some internet research, and, and the timing is 10 seconds. If you are going to let the car run more than 10 seconds, it saves gas to shut it off. I mean, so, and it's pretty intuitive to, for us to know, if you're going to let the car run for a long time, it's going to use a lot of gas, so it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. But this boy, he was going to, he was, he was set with his position. And, and all the rest of us were kind of going, what? 
That happened with Jesus. Jesus said, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You know, the people who were around the cross, not, not, the, not the ones we call the disciples, but the common people of Israel, they had this passage, Isaiah 53. They had that. And, and here he is, and they could have looked at that and went, wow, this has come to pass. But instead, they looked at him and they said, not what I want. I hope today you have seen Christ clearly. And I hope that your response to that will be, wow, he's my Savior. I need to worship him. And especially as I come to this table now to receive the bread that reminds me of that terrible beatings that he had and to receive the juice that reminds me of of his bloodshed and his death. I need to worship him and I need to be moved to realize that he paid for my sin, that he died in my place. Heavenly Father, thank you for being satisfied with the death of Christ so that I don't have to owe you a debt of sin. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place and for transforming my life. May you be honored by my worship today and by all of us gathered here. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.